the only podcast that asks for seats back row in the middle. It's The Cinema Crew with Village Cinema. Emma Thompson hosts her own talk show in Late Night. That's our show, everyone. This year is your last. You're cancelling the show. I'm cancelling you. Swedish horror in Midsummer. Trust me. A true Australian war story in Danger Close. Delta is the best company in the battalion. There is something out there. We will find it. And a star-studded Australian cast in Palm Beach. It's a friendship. You're so lucky. Billy still loves you. Wait, he looks at you. Oh, he's just too vain to wear his glasses. All he sees is a blur. <laughs> That's this week on The Cinema Crew. Hello and welcome to The Cinema Crew, the podcast that talks new movies every week. My name is Michael Campbell, but you can call me Cambo. And joining me, as always, is Vari McIntyre. Hello. And Dan Miranda. Hey. Now, your chance to win a gold-class double pass coming up just a little later on, but first... Just because I was lucky enough to get this job doesn't mean I'm stupid enough to lose it. I want you to know that you have changed my life. No, no. Your earnestness can be very hard to be around. Mindy Kalig has had a long career as a writer-actor. First writing and appearing in the American Office remake to the Mindy Project, books, and even her first feature film, Late Night. For her first film project, she's managed some impressive talent in the form of Emma Thompson and John Lithgow. Now, with all those ingredients, Vari, does it add up to a good film? Yeah, this one was really enjoyable. So Emma Thompson plays Catherine Newbery, who is a legendary late-night talk show host. Um, but her show is in danger of being cancelled, so she tries to shake things up by hiring newcomer Molly, played by Mindy Kaling, into her all-male writer's room. And Molly has a lot to prove, and she's determined not to be seen as just a uh, diversity hire, as they call it. I do think that Mindy Kaling is, she's often like really credited for how funny she is as an actress, mm. but I think people maybe underestimate how good she is as a writer. Mm. Yeah. Some of the best episodes of The Office were written by her, and the, I mean, the Mindy Project was like, she was the showrunner for the whole span of the series, and that's a pretty consistently good series the whole way through. She's a really great writer, and I'm so glad that she's now kind of moving into actual like feature films like this. So even though it is a comedy and there's a lot of funny bits in it, it's also a pretty serious commentary on racism and ageism in the TV industry. So Catherine Newbury, the head of the, the show, is almost being cancelled because she's a bit older and behind the times, but there's all these famous men who still have late-night shows mm. who are fine. And she's accused of being a one of these women who hates women, which is why she hires Molly. And Molly has a lot to prove as a woman and a woman of colour in a very all-white male-dominated industry. And that, So that's something that I think that this film is, it's got such a great, like, timely thing mm. about mm. it. And it's something that is, like, so true in 2019 that this is something that is, like, the forefront of people's mind at the moment. The only thing I, I really wish is that they have gone like super, super hard at it because it is such a timely and good, interesting message. And I guess it's that balance of like how hard do you want to drive it and also make it like an entertaining yeah. comedy for the masses, I guess. So there's always that trade-off. But I wanted to really, really like go out swinging with this kind of stuff. And it does 
but it can't, I think it pulls its punches just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that would have been a very different, serious movie if they had done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm talking about like movies like Spotlight. <laughs> oh, yes. And that's not this movie. No, not at all. We still want to laugh, I suppose. Yeah, yeah exactly. We've talked a lot about Mindy Kaling and, and how great she is and how good she is as a writer, but I think this movie definitely belongs to Emma Thompson. Absolutely. Who is hilarious and like scary in the, in the same breath in the, I guess in the way that Meryl Streep is yeah. in the devil yeah, wears Prada. That. She's like hilarious, but also you're like, I never want to meet you. <laughs> no, <laughs> you, you might be, you know, amazing and such an inspiration to obviously the character of Molly, but you are a bit scared to, and to, to the point where them. she like dehumanizes her writing stuff to just numbers. <laughs> yes. She just numbers them. Cause it's easier than remembering their names. But all of this, I'm sure, is like, you know, the outer shell of the gooey centre that we eventually might see a bit more mm, of throughout the film. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's the whole crux of these kind of yeah. movies, isn't it? It's like, yeah. I mean, it's the unlikely friendship is, is always um, almost like a cliche yeah. of these. Yeah. But the, the, the hard-ass character that no one can get to and then there's that one person that can. And yeah. they do a really good job of when you first meet Emma Thompson, you think, oh, she is kind of unpleasant and she is kind of so stern. but through showing her life and her circumstance and stuff like that, they really do make you sympathize with her. And about maybe like halfway through the movie, mm. you're actually just completely on her side now. So who do you think should see Late Night? I think fans of SNL, anyone who loves comedy and particularly sketch comedy, I think if you're a fan of any of that SNL series where, you know, the writing is basically what brings it to life, you'll enjoy this film. It's kind of got vibes of 30 Rock as well. Not as funny as that, but that office uh, larrikin joking around all the characters that you get in that sort of office comedy aspect. And it's really witty, well-made, nice characters. It's a solid film. It's like a crazy nine-day festival. It only happens every 90 years. You can't speak. You can't move. Filmmaker Ari Aster has made a huge splash last year with his feature film debut, Hereditary, a film that united the critics but divided the audiences. One thing was clear, Ari Aster was a filmmaker to watch, while now he's back with his follow-up film, Midsummer, With so many expectations on his shoulders, how does it stack up? This Film Midsummer definitely, for me, feels like a, a dangerous trope of Ari Aster's di directorial style because many <laughs> elements of this film can be paralleled with Hereditary. And I know a lot of people loved it. I think I was on the other side because I could not take that film, <laughs> that film seriously. But in saying that, this film does have a lot of merit. And basically the... The outline of the story is of a girl who suffers a tragedy within her family and with her boyfriend and his college roommates, I suppose, um, go on, I guess, a sabbatical over to during the summer vacation to Sweden to a what I would call a festival of sorts. And that's where the story is mainly set. And and based on a real thing, Midsummer or Midsummer, I mean, it's Swedish, so it's probably pronounced a, a completely different way yeah, than yeah, we're yeah. actually pronouncing it. But it's based, be it vaguely, on an actual real festival. So this one takes the that subgenre of horror, the folk horror, mm. and this is more of a psychedelic nightmare uh, <laughs> trip, all those words, uh, than Hereditary was. But it's got aspects of Wicker Man and those sorts of films. 
I, I think I said at the end of the film, it feels like if Hereditary and Wicker Man had a baby. Yeah. Um, and it's got similar tones to Suspiria as well. Uh, it is quite long, but I didn't feel like it was that long. I was so engaged on the edge of my seat. The whole film, I think they say it's a mystery. There's not much mystery in it, but it is <laughs> very thrilling and violent. So I don't think you can have a weak stomach watching this one. It just descends into this cultish violence. Yeah, I don't know how, how much to say without <laughs> giving it away. Well, that's the thing. It's one of those movies that perhaps is best left knowing little I about. I think the mystery of the film is how you will come to it and enjoy it more. So uh, people that have listened <laughs> to this podcast for a little bit will know that I always bring up Hereditary whenever I talk about movies that stayed with me because mm. it kind of messed me up. How mm. do you think it goes on the level of like Hereditary where it just kind of lingers with you? How would you compare it to something like that? There's a lot of shocking scenes in it and a lot of these motifs and, and metaphors all yes. throughout it. So you're just constantly picking up things and afterwards it just lingers in your head because you're connecting all the dots. And it's one of these films, which I love when they do this, have so much in it that you are thinking about it afterwards and you could watch it a second and a third time and pick them all out and still find new things. And I think in terms of the cinematography, we need to mention how beautifully shot the mm. film comes across. Yeah. Uh, you, I just felt like sometimes you would get lulled into a sense of ease <laughs> and then there'd be this jarring change with either the score or the sound design. Um, and it just, there's so much going on from one take to the next or from one scene to the next. And something mm. that's notable and kind of rare in horror is uh, a lot of daylight. Yes. And like outdoor yes. and normally horrors are dark, dark house and this is kind of daylight field and, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's something that maybe is underappreciated how much harder that must be to make that scary. Definitely. Um, yeah. I only, I only jumped once, but that was in a darker scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You had such a brave look on your face when you said yeah, that yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. I only jumped Jump once. Once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's more of a uncomfortable squirming in your seat watching it in horror as you like silently scream what is going on? Oh my or God. Mm. So I love that that description is both to a certain set of people so appealing and then mm. to another set of people sounds like the worst thing ever. It's one of these ones where I like, I've liked it more since leaving and thinking about it and doing uh, more research on it, finding more information about it. Has like, and you're right. Like it, it more. It, it, I think the more you watch this film, the more you will appreciate it. Similar to hereditary, mm. I think, cause there's, a tapestry of, you know, information that I'm sure is lost in the first viewing. They're up against an entire battalion out there. That's seven or eight hundred men. We're not going to make it, are we? The Battle of Long Tan is one of the most famous battles in Australian war history. The odds stacked against a group of young soldiers. They had to battle against all odds to survive. And who better to tell that story than the director of Red Dog? So we know the story is historically significant, but Vari, does the film do it justice? It really does. Uh, you say famous, but I hadn't heard of it. Me neither. And I think that's... I yeah, should, I should I uh, maybe I should preface, I grew up with a dad that read nothing but war history books. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so okay. maybe my view was a little warped. <laughs> but I was like, when I heard Longtan, I was like, oh, the Battle of Longtan. 
Because most Australian films about war are about Gallipoli and a lot of war <laughs> films are about either of the two world wars. Mm-hmm. So we don't get a lot of Vietnam War movies and I think that's because there was such a social stigma around this war. It's really good to see something like this come out. So as you said, the Battle of Long Tan, that was on August 1966 and it's actually a rubber plantation and there was an army, Australian army base there and they saw some people in the forest and they sent out this battalion and they said just check it out and they didn't expect to find much. But actually there's 2,500 Viet Cong soldiers coming for them and this small group of soldiers gets cut off from the base and they can't retreat and they can't go anywhere and there's a few sections of them and it just plays out in such a realistic, naturalistic way and I was just so entranced by the story. I think the being trapped is a very good word to use for this film because you are sort of isolated on the battlefield pretty much the entire time and I felt a bit a sense of unease and also just mm. watching how how the uh, I guess the generals and all the officers the way that they would instruct their soldiers to carry out different orders was Uh, It was just a bit jarring for me. Most of them were conscripts. There were some volunteers, but most Mm. of these guys, I think they said the average age was 20, 21. No battle experience. So, and you see these young actors portraying these people and they have no idea what they're in for. They're all bloody scared and Mm. they're just dropped into this jungle away from home and... It, the movie just sort of delves straight into the action. It doesn't really set anything up. It's just straight into it. So I think that works with the unease as well because mm. you yourself are just dropped into this situation. So I, I would, I don't want to, I guess, big myself up too much, but I would consider myself a war movie aficionado. Oh, I see mm-hmm. everything. and I, I That's a genre I okay. really like. Good. Which is weird because it's such a horrible genre of like <laughs> bleakness and depressing and, mm. and whatnot. But, you know, I grew up in a, a family where my dad was obsessed with this stuff. And for me, uh, I actually, I didn't love this film. And I, I do love the story of the Battle of Long Tan because mm. it is all about kind of like grit and and not leaving people behind and stuff like that. But there was something in the way, and I'm going to pin it on the cinematography and the direction a little bit. Right. It was so mm. sleek and so- It was beautiful. So beautiful. <laughs> that it kind of almost took me out of it a bit because there is something to the grime of a war film where you're like, oh, man, this is even uncomfortable to watch. The example everyone goes to is the starting of Saving Private Ryan Mm. where it's almost difficult Mm. to know what's going on. You're in the headset of that. And there was something about how slick and almost like overproduced this was that took me out a little bit. The slow-mo, I reckon, was what what did it for me. Yeah, and there's um, there's a lot to do with like artillery shells shooting from one location to the other and there's these big and possible drone shots from, and it's a cool shot, mm. but it kind of takes you out of the realism of like being on the ground there yeah. a little bit. Sure. And so I do think it does look beautiful, but I think maybe it shouldn't look beautiful, if that makes sense. <laughs> I was going to say the complete opposite because all of those points you were saying, I was like, that was good for me because I wanted to know like situationally where these different groups were in the jungle and by having these long-range shots, and yes, there's one that follows an artillery shell from the base all the way over the jungle to where it lands, which is like, you know, what was it, 10, 20 kilometres or something, yeah, something like, like that. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Um, 
I was like, yeah, I want to know how far away this is. Is that a weird thing to want to know in a movie? No, because <laughs> that's actually a good point because a lot of the time I bring up geography and fight mm. scenes and um, yeah. that's true. This does have a very good sense of where everybody is at all times because it is kind of a confusing battle. There's like groups of like and little they camps split, of splinter people off, don't they? that splinter off, but you're never, mm. you're never unsure where everyone's located. So that's a good point, Vari. I guess like maybe there was some kind of middle ground or something like that. I actually do think the performances for the most mm. part are also quite good, Yeah, which is I, I don't like kicking Australian films. It's something that I don't always find in Australian films. Mm. Sometimes the performances are a little subpar, but I think in this, for the most part, very good. Yeah. The main guy is Travis Fimmel, who you might know from Vikings, and mm -hmm. he does a brilliant performance. It kind of borrows elements, I think, of his... Uh, character of Ragnar in Vikings as well. He's kind of got this way about him that he moves and talks very jarringly and he's very uh, forward and really ruthlessly mean to the soldiers. So I'll have to take my dad on the weekend, but who do you think should see Danger Close? Danger Close is for fans of history, in particular, obviously, war history. If you've had a personal connection to war, either be yourself or a relative, see this film because this will be entertaining. There's something different about Australian movies about war. Americans tend to glorify the violence and Australians do a really good job at just showing real characters and real situations as just how they happen. So there's a different way of filming it. So if you like those stories that Australians tell in a really matter-of-fact sort of way, it ticks all those boxes for me. Just quickly, that is really interesting. You, you point out the difference between the two countries because – and yeah, American films are all about victory and crushing the enemy. And Australian war films are always about mateship and like getting through it with, with your mate. And that is the mm. difference. If you're expecting one, you'll kind of get the other. So yeah. just know that it's that kind of film going in. Also still in cinemas, Hobbs and Shaw. Fast and the Furious spin-off with the two bold guys. <laughs> that doesn't narrow it down at all. And The Keeper. Troutman, a prisoner of war from Germany. Will he be a famous soccer player? Yes, because it's a true story. Yes. Now you can hear about <laughs> both of those movies and, in fact, everything that's in cinemas right now in our back catalogue, which you can access from whichever podcast app you would like. Never have sold the business. At least you have other things. Never wanted kids. Now look at yours. You have bloody great kids, Frank. You are an obstinate, obstreperous control freak. That's nice. Must be my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Brown leads one of the most impressive Australian casts in a long time in Palm Beach. And under the direction of Rachel Ward, there is a wealth of screen history shared between all the cast and crew. So, does the whole equal more than the sum of its parts, Dan? <laughs> Does it? That's a very interesting point, Cambo, because in this film, Palm Beach, we do have an all-star cast, obviously Brian Brown, we've got Richard E. Grant, and I feel that all of these people, all these family members are one piece of a larger puzzle. And I think it's interesting because family is the biggest theme in this film and takes place at Brian Brown's home on the north coast of New South Wales, um, north of Sydney, and it's a celebration of his birthday. And as many people are aware, there is a secret that the family holds and this is about that coming to fruition or coming out. In that way, it kind of reminded me, and I don't know if this is a, a really odd take on it, but like a Victorian period drama. Okay. You know, is. they all come to the manor house. Uh, they all stay together for the weekend. And there's 
in those movies, there's always a lot of food because they're all rich and they all <laughs> yeah. just sit down yeah. and get served things. And that's what this movie felt like. At the base of it, it was just a, a character drama. They all come together and they have a lot of champagne. And that's what happens in Victorian period dramas. So I don't, I think, I fear that maybe I'm going to be the minority here because I didn't like it. And I, I didn't like it for some of the same reasons that I didn't really like Crazy Rich Asians that much as mm-hmm. well, which is, in fact, I would say Crazy Rich Asians was a little better than this. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of like superficiality oh, to it. It's complete opulence, this film. It's kind of like <laughs> white middle class mm. Australians that mm. don't have that big a problem. Problems, <laughs> no, yeah. Complaining about their problems <laughs> while they're in a mansion by on <laughs> yes. Palm Beach in the richest part of Sydney. Mm. And I don't know whether it's just where my lot in life no. where I kind of disconnect from uh, it a bit. But it seemed a little because it's like it, you know Rachel Ward and Brian Brown are married and they they wrote it together. It seemed a little bit like self indulgent to be like guys, we have problems too. <laughs> you know, sometimes I fight with my wife. Yes, and I haven't got it all together yet. And well, I like I'm, I'm coming I'm coming across very harsh on this movie. I didn't hate the movie, but no. there's something about it that really didn't connect with me. But I think what's interesting about Brian Brown's character is that he. Um, is searching for the unattainable, which is perfection. Yeah. And even he's got this beautiful mansion overlooking the the beach, both sides of the beach actually, mm-hmm. and there's this one little thing which t- happens to be a chimney. Yeah. <laughs> um, and because of that, everything is ruined. So I think that's an interesting way to look at it, that nothing's perfect. I mean, we are making it sound pretty superficial, but at the heart <laughs> of it there is a bit more uh, – meat to it. It's brought into question the legitimacy of his son. Mm. So, you know, don't want to give too much away, but there is that sort of family drama to it as well. And it's the chimney, I think, is just a metaphor for his frustrations of how he doesn't feel like in control of his life. It's that sort of midlife crisis and all of them are having one. And it might sound superficial to us, but each individual character is going through something. They're ageing, they're not in love with their partner anymore or something. And so they're just, they might be small, but they're realistic and relatable for some viewers. If you're going through that sort of stage in life, I guess, and you're sort of questioning, did I do the right things when I was younger? Do I have the right career? Mm. It's too late to change anything about that now. I've been married for too long. What do I do? I mean, everyone's parents are going to love this film for the cast alone, but who do you think should see this film? Oh, it's definitely aimed at the boomer generation, I'd say. (laughs) Hey, boomers, you have problems too. They're like, we know. It's one of these films where it just offers a snapshot of life and it might not be yours, but it's got some good character moments in it, beautiful scenery, and it's just really enjoyable. And if you're a fan of Australiana, I think you'd enjoy this film. Now, for your chance to win a gold-class double pass, simply head to the Village Cinema's Facebook or Instagram page, find the Cinema Crew post and answer the question. To honour the movie Late Night, what other celebrity do you think should host their own late-night talk show? Yes, simply leave your comment with the hashtag TheCinemaCrew for your chance to win. Next week, the godfather of all film students, Quentin Tarantino, returns with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and more adorable times with your four-legged friends, in a dog's journey. But until next time, thank you, Vari. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. My name is Cambo, and this is The Cinema Crew with Village Cinemas.